Welcome to The Storytellers, the radio show and podcast that features those who choose to leave their mark on the world through the art of story. I'm your host, Grace Salmon. I look forward to our time together today. Now, let's meet our storyteller. Julia Brewer-Daly is a Texan with a Southern accent. She holds degrees in education and in English from the University of Southern Mississippi. She's been an educator, a communications adjunct professor, and a public relations director. She was the founding director of the Greater Bellhaven Market and even shadowed Martha Stewart. As the executive director of the Craftsmen's Guild of Mississippi, she wrote the artisan's story to introduce them to the public. Now she's using all of those skills with her fabulous debut novel, No Names to Be Given, and with her new podcast about women authors over 50. Julia, welcome to the Storyteller's Microphone. Thank you so much, Grace. I'm delighted to be here. I've really looked forward to today for so many reasons. One of them is your new novel. I am captivated by the story that you tell of adoption, but also how you focus on this very specific period, I think in American history at least, where women disappeared to give up their children. Tell us about No Names to Be Given. Well, it's a work of fiction, although it has a thread of my own memoir running through it. I have three uh, young unwed women who meet at a maternity home hospital in New Orleans to relinquish their babies for adoption. And they are supposed to return home as if nothing transpired. And 25 years later, they're brought back together because of blackmail and secrets. And they are exposed all the way to the White House. So that's the premise of the story. And the background is that I'm a, an adopted child from that maternity home hospital in New Orleans. What drove you to storytelling now? Uh, I know that's a particular interest of you based on where you're going with your new podcast as well, but why storytelling and why now in your own life? You know, if I had told this story 45 years ago when I searched and found my own birth mother, it would have been a sensation because nobody was searching. Nobody, you know, you didn't see anything in the news about finding their birth parents. And of course, we didn't have the DNA kits that we now have today that exposes a lot of secrets that people may not want exposed. But I was a single parent for a, a good bit of time. And I had two and three careers going on at the same time trying to make ends meet. And I didn't have time in my life um, rearing three children. And after I retired, I said, you know, it's time for me to get this story out of my head and on paper. So that became my full time job. I've worked since I was 18. And and I think, you know, work keeps us busy, but it also provides so much enjoyment for us. And so I decided to sit down and get this paper and get this story on paper. One of the things I like to do here on The Storytellers is share about how many commonalities we all have. I really want us to re recognize that we are more the same than we are different. So one of the things in your bio that I loved was that you, like myself, have taught at almost every grade level from kindergarten up. So that was really fun. And I didn't realize we were both single parents for a long time in our lives. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I'm so glad that you had this opportunity to share that as well. 
You talked about your book and you talk about these three very distinct women characters. I had the opportunity to interview Zibby Owens of Zibby Owens Media just last week. And she has a new book coming out and she's, I think the number one New York book influencer. And I asked her what the secret to a great book is to really capture somebody's um, attention. And she said, as many people do, it is not my gift, unfortunately, to have an amazing first sentence. So if it's okay with you, I'd love to just read the opening of your book. I would be honored. Magnolia Home Hospital, New Orleans, 1966. Men loved Sandy's body. She didn't have the option of leading with her wit or intellect. Her looks arrived first. It was both a blessing and a curse. You had me at hello. How did you, know, you do that? Well, when I was writing this book, as I'm sure a lot of us do, I could see those women like they were on the big screen. I wrote as if I could see them in a movie. And so when I captured her personality, I, I could see all of that happening. And she was um, loosely, very loosely based on a stripper in um, New Orleans that all of us who went to New Orleans and walked down Bourbon Street from the time we were teenagers, we um, saw this, this club on Bourbon Street, although we were sometimes too young to get into it. But there was a woman there who was an exotic dancer for 30 or 40 years. I mean, her posters remained, you know, from her young days. But I could see Sandy uh, in that club and, and see, um, see, you know, that, that sometimes women's looks do arrive first. And we don't always have the chance to, um, to show what, what's underneath that, those looks. <laughs> Each of your characters is so strong. I, I navigated towards Sandy right away because I think she's who we meet first. Talk about the other, or talk about all three characters and why you chose each of theirs perspective. Well, I wanted to showcase that um, in this baby scoop era, which was probably from the thirties through about the seventies, even uh, to the eighties, um, when women, if they were unwed, they were going somewhere to give up their baby for adoption. There were no options for women to keep their, their babies. Their family um, was against it. Their society was against it, especially in the deep South. And so there were a lot of secrets, but I wanted to show that these women came from all walks of life. They came from upper class backgrounds. Um, they came from, you know, middle-class backgrounds, but they all had the same result. And so in each one of these women, I wanted to, to show um, a, a segment of the population that, that all ended up in a maternity home if they became pregnant. You know, back then, there weren't many um, birth control methods, and there certainly wasn't abortion available um, that was legal. And so these women, you know, no matter who they were or where they came from, if they came from an upper class background uh, as well, two of my characters are from upper class backgrounds, one being from an evangelical minister's family, internationally known, kind of 
um, thought about Billy Graham, you know, at the time, a, a very internationally known minister uh, as her father, but they all ended up in the same place. I love that you leveled the playing field, if you were, that again, it's that idea of we're more the same than we are not. Uh, you also introduced me to a term that I had not heard, and I think you call it baby scoop. Mm -hmm. Is that a common term? It is, and, and a lot of people have written about this time, and and you know, we think back, that wasn't that long ago, you know, um, and especially in the 50s when I was born, in the 60s when these women were in my my story, that's not so long ago, and, and it's just so difficult to believe uh, the flip of culture that allows women today, you know, to have children without the benefit of, you know, a person, uh, a spouse in the house or a partner, you know, they can have children and, and keep those children. But back then it was just unheard of. And so these maternity homes sprang up around the country and uh, there's still about 400 maternity homes in the U.S. today, but they're mostly to help the women keep the babies, to try to get them jobs and uh, to learn how to parent. So um, that, that's the direction they've gone in now. The term baby scoop to me on first bounce sounds like there was a plan to scoop the babies up and harvest them away, if it, you will. Was there anything of that or was it really a way to deal with a, a shame, if you will, not an appropriate shame, but a stigma that society placed on these young women? Well, really both, because, you know, there are true stories um, about children being kidnapped and, and babies being taken away, um, you know, that were actually uh, true stories. But mainly the society just believed that you had to have both a mother and a father in the in the family to have a child. And my own parents were um, really scrutinized before they could adopt. They had to um, have a separate bedroom for each child in the family. They, you know, had home visits. They filled out a lot of applications and um, they tried to match our hair and eye and skin color, you know, so that that you could keep the secret if you didn't want to tell that your child was adopted. You could say that they were, you know, birthed to you. And, you know, even the birth certificates back then were changed. Um, if someone adopted a child, then the birth certificate reflected that those um, people had the child and the original birth certificate was sealed. And there's still um, most states have sealed records. Only about 10 states in the country allow adult adoptees to access their records. I had no idea it was that few, Julia. And I also had never thought that the secret was on both sides, that there were some people who didn't want to admit that the child they had adopted was indeed adopted. So you've really opened my eyes to a lot just in our short time together. How has your story changed you? And I know one of the fun things for us as authors is how have readers reacted to it? What feedback have you gotten? You know, that's been my favorite part of this journey in writing this book. And as you well know, when readers reach out to you and they're affected by a certain part in the book, 
I've had other adoptees reach out to me. I've had adoptive parents as well as birth mothers. I had one birth mother reach out to me from California and she had relinquished her child in the same hospital where I was born. And she's writing um, her book and uh, about it's going to be a memoir about being in that maternity home. And I asked her, I said, did I get the maternity home correct? Did all the birth mothers, you know, really bond? And she said, you know, it, it is true when you're under that kind of duress, that kind of emotional uh, duress that you feel like you're in a foxhole, you know, and you get to know people very quickly. And even though a lot of maternity homes gave them different names than their own names, they were still trying to protect them when they went back home that this secret would never come out. And when I opened the records um, to my original birth certificate and, and actually found that my birth grandmother still lived uh, at that address and I reached out to her, I asked her if her daughter had given up a baby for adoption. And she said, absolutely not. Even after all these years, she was still protecting her daughter and keeping that secret. How old were you when you reached back to uh, try to find your birth parents? I was pregnant with my second daughter. I was in my early 20s. And the only way I could open those records is in Louisiana. There was still a Napoleonic law on the books that said that an adopted child can inherit from their natural parents. Well, you can't inherit from somebody you don't know. So that was a, just a little loophole that I was able to uh, use to open the records. And I think they closed those uh, soon after that. That's, that's also a fascinating part of this. Tell me about your life post release of the book. What kinds of things are you involved in? Well, I had no idea what the marketing would take uh, for these books. Um, I've, I've been on a lot of blog tours and uh, um, I've spoken to book clubs all across the country. You know, Zoom, at least during the pandemic, has opened that opportunity for us that we wouldn't be able to travel all around the country and speak to book clubs. So I Zoom in with book clubs and um, I've actually... Um, started a second book. I've become enamored with the ranches here in Texas. So the second book is going to be um, about a contemporary ranch here in Texas with a female heiress. Um, to the, she's the fifth daughter um, generational ranch out here. And she stumbles upon an ancient people living on her property. I was influenced when I went to um Mesa Verde National Park in Colorado, mm -hmm. I had never seen such ruins. I didn't know we had ruins like that in the U.S. And it looked like condos were built in the side of this mountain. And this ancient yes. people had, you know, left. And they really don't know if it was because of drought or disease or, you know, why they, warfare, why they left. So I thought, well, maybe they came over to Texas. And <laughs> it's certainly so, flatter there. Even if you're in the hill country, it's certainly yeah. flatter. Exactly. So that's what I've been doing. And then I, as you mentioned before, have started a podcast that will begin this month, um, interviewing people who have written their first book after the age of 50, because I see people on the under 30 or under 40 list and all the awards that they receive. And I said, you know, it's time that we celebrate those of us who waited until our retirement 
but are among um, a lot of people, in, including Laura Ingalls Wilder, you know, who wrote uh, her first book, the Little House series at age 65. So there are a lot of uh, people out there who are just beginning. And I've interviewed some people who are in their 80s and 90s. So I said, maybe it's like swimming. We can do it the rest of our life. <laughs> I think so. And I love the idea of your new podcast. So tell me again what the name of it's going to be called. It's called Authors Over 50. And I imagine we'll be able to get it at any place you can get your podcast. Everywhere. Stories. Apple, Google. Yeah. I want to take just a second and look at your own trajectory, if you will. You know, you came into the world as a secret, if you will. And now, and at that uh, baby scoop period of time. And now we're so public. You and I both have our own podcast. We are both authors. We both are novelists after the age of 50. Where do you see things going for, for yourself and for women as a whole? You know, I have thought about that so often and wondered, would we still have, um, people being able to adopt in the, in the future. You know, so many mothers are keeping their babies. And then if we get so open that parents are afraid to adopt because, you know, somebody might come back into their life and want their child to return to them, you know, will it still be the culture that, that, that we've had better than the past and the women have an option but also, you know, there's so many women these days who have uh, fertility issues who, who can't have their um, birth children. And I, I certainly hope that my book and others like it will, will open a conversation about the foster care system and all the older children who are in the foster care system who so desire a home. My oldest daughter adopted four older children from ages eight to 16 and they have just blended beautifully in our in our family and I just hope people will consider that you know one of the lines I put in my book the nurses are talking in the maternity home and one of them says you know you just don't know what you're going to get when you adopt and the other one said do you know what you're going to get when you birth your own and that's the truth, because I had three children and they're not like they're even cousins, much less brothers and sisters. So I don't know that you always know what you're going to get with any any child, but it's certainly worth the journey. I love that you also put the focus on foster care here in Florida. We have something called the Guardian Ad Litem program, and I was a volunteer with them for six years. And we're the ones who are not the physical guardian of the child, but in terms of their legal, medical, and educational issues. And I would tell you that some of my happiest stories over the six years where I served as a guardian were when the kids were adopted out, um, that the families were so broken, or that there were not enough uh, supports for people who had to relinquish their children or were court ordered to relinquish their children. So some of, although I would not have thought it prior to being a guardian, uh, some of my happiest resolutions were adoption stories. Uh, and I had a, a whole family of four kids adopted out to one family. So thank you for sharing the spotlight on that as well. Go ahead. 
I really hope that people will take a look at that because it, it's so important. But you know, it's it's a it's a flip of a coin. It's a double-sided coin adoption because there's the loss from one woman, uh, the birth mother, and then there's the joy and excitement of the other to receive the child. So I mean, it's such a gift. But that's what I dedicated uh, my book. You know, is to two mothers. Uh, one gave me life and the other gave me a life. And a beautiful dedication. Julia, thank you for being a guest on the Storytellers today. Come back again. I love to follow your journey and best of luck. Thank you so much, Grace. Take care. This has been a copyrighted episode of the Storytellers by Grace Salmon and Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thanks for being with us. That concludes this episode of The Storytellers. I'm so glad you could be part of the story today. I hope you share the stories, tell your own, and come back for another episode. Because when our stories are told, everything changes. I'm Grace Salmon.